Hi everyone, Jessica Morales joining you now with Mr. Tom Petrie, Chairman of Petrie Partners. I also have my colleagues Steve Toon and Jennifer Presley joining us. Will such a price shock actually serve to rebalance markets, Tom, by eliminating high cost production? Is, is there uh, you know, a silver lining in all of this? Yeah, there is to some degree, uh, but it, you know, we've got better visibility on the U.S. than we have on the whole, the whole earth, uh, the global, global picture. And I've I, I've heard people assert something in the 500 to 700,000 barrel a day range for uh, high cost stripper wells, for example. Um, and so some of that will be shut in because uh, uh, you know it it can be restarted when prices are acceptable. But at this point, uh, usually the people that own that are going to have trouble getting it to market anyway, and so they will they will be shutting some of that down. Um, I, the, we don't have, we're the most developed country in the world because of the history of it. So I don't know that there's quite the equivalent of that elsewhere. There are other reasons why high cost production uh, is going to have difficulty. Canadian production, for example, uh, getting that, uh, the medium and heavy oil in Canada to the relevant market, which right now is the Gulf Coast. We spent $85 billion um, upgrading our refineries to run heavier oil. In general, we have, we've, uh, uh, we're short heavier oil in the Gulf Coast because hauling it all the way from Saudi Arabia, from Iraq, and, uh, and uh, elsewhere in the Middle East has, uh, you know, has diminished anyway. And, and frankly, uh, the, the, in, the tendency to want to use ships for storage because it's so tight elsewhere. I think there is some high cost oil that will be part of the self-correcting mechanism that's been triggered. Okay, so Tom, a follow up to that. What, how do you foresee the US oil and gas landscape? What will that look like on the other side of this, Tom? Well, you know, even before this all happened, there was a sense and, and a widening sense, a broadening sense that M&A consolidation uh, was overdue. Uh, one of the things that in our system, when we see opportunity, the ability of the financial system to fund and fund generously and then ultimately overfund um, uh, good ideas uh, is there. And so we've, we've had a big expansion in the ability of independents to get capital Initially, they got equity capital because people saw the Oklahoma land rush um, aspects of the shale uh, revolution. Um, and then um, for those who captured acreage, uh, then various bond uh, options opened up involving high yield finance. And, um, and so there's right now, there's $110 billion of that kind of uh, high yield financing out there that'll come due in the next three to five years. Um, and, uh, and some of the, some of the companies, you know, the, the, that situation uh, was okay at 50 or $55 at, uh, at $20 and less. And even at a recovered 25, 30, $35, uh, that, that's, gonna, that's gonna be a challenge. So I see an M&A consolidation that's coming and it'll be, it'll be coming partly because of what they call uh, liability management, which is a euphemism for you know, restructuring the, the uh, right-hand side of the balance sheet. 
you know, this, I guess my question is more along the lines of just OPEC in general, you know, that much has changed in the, in the 60 years or so since its establishment, you know, in your opinion, how well is, has it kept up with the, the changing times? Um, you know, certainly we've all been disrupted with, you know, the past six weeks or so, you know, is there an opportunity there to look at OPEC and, and, and tweak it or, you know, make changes to it. Is there room for a representative, if you will, of, of the independent oil and gas, you know, producers? Is there room for someone like that at OPEC's table? Or does OPEC just, you know, not interested in hearing the independent side? Well, I think, I think OPEC, OPEC's way of functioning uh, is changing. Um, this is, uh, for most of the members of OPEC, this is their most important item to, to sell in the international markets. Um, and so that's why they've opted for the cartel arrangement. Um, but they've shown that even as a cartel, they don't, they're not, not omnipotent and they do have to recognize market reality. They've gotten better and better at that over the four decades, five decades that we're now dealing with. Um, and so I'm, I think they've become uh, a reasonably functional organization, but the, the way they function now is challenged. And it, it, it will used to be the case, but it's much more the case today that there's the haves and have nots um, within OPEC or the healthy OPEC players and those who are less healthy. Um, and so I think they're going to, they're going to, how well they stand the test of the, of the year 2020 will probably define uh, how it how it will function as an organization in the balance of this decade. And uh, clearly, OPEC has always needed leadership. Traditionally, that's come from Saudi Arabia. And now, because there are two other claimants to being the largest uh, producer and exporter in the world, um, there, you know, the leadership involves also Russia, and to some degree, dialogue with the U.S. Um, I don't see it as dialogue with it. I don't think there's a role for the independents because even the biggest independents, in most cases, are not bigger than the the, the smaller OPEC members. There might be an exception or two to that, but very few. And for uh, North American independents that are incorporated in either the U.S. or Canada, there are legal constraints on their being part of a cartel in its function. But I do think there's going to be a better dialogue. And, and really what we're going through now is, is really fostering a better dialogue with OPEC in order that everybody's needs for a workable price uh, needs to be, um, they need to at least improve the odds of the market functioning to reward uh, the pricing for participants. You know, in my judgment, I think that says we don't get back to $100 oil for a very long time, but it does say uh, the excursion from a $55 to $65 price down to a sub-20 price is so extreme that there are no winners. This is not a win-win. This is, this is a lose-lose-lose. It's a losing proposition for OPEC. It's a losing proposition uh, for the rest of the industry that's not part of OPEC. And it's clearly a losing proposition longer term for consuming nations. 
because uh, uh, the constraints that we're now dealing with will ultimately um, kick in in terms of uh, supply shortages that are in nobody's interest. And so I think there's, there's going to be a, a workable dialogue that will develop. And, in, and I think the ingredients for that are already in place. You know, this is not the first go round of this. Back in, you know, 2014, we had the Thanksgiving surprise. Uh, prices dropped. They came back up and then they plummeted again. And I think it was February of 15, 16, February of 16. And then uh, following that, OPEC and Russia created the OPEC Plus Agreement that has been in place until just recently. So right. my premise is this, Tom, um, notwithstanding the effects on demand from coronavirus, was a price collapse inevitable? Was the price of oil over these past three or four years um, uh, falsely propped up or unnaturally propped up by that agreement? Was it, was it destined to end anyhow? Uh, it was, but not in quite the dramatic fashion that we're experiencing at the moment. I, I think there was, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pr price distribution chart that I have. And I think, I think I used it in maybe one of the recent, the, the last uh, conference or so, where I showed the price distribution for each of those years. 13, I, I did it for 13 and then 14 and then I took out 15 just because it was part of the path to 16 where we made the lows. And, um, and what we learned during that period was as soon as we get to the low, and the low, as I recall, was in the spring of 16, the agreement went in, as you mentioned, uh, with OPEC plus in February. And by, by April or May, we made the low in WTI at $26.40 at least in the commodity market, that's what it was. And um, then we had a good recovery back into the 50s. And, uh, but then uh, in, in 18, we, we had enough recovery where we got up to a price that uh, at the low end it was 58 and at the high end it was something like uh, 77. And we began to think about $80 oil. And, and what we were defining was you know what what is sustainable in a in a us in a world economy where at that time president trump was hammering the chinese um with successive increases in tariffs and that was beginning to induce concern about what the long term uh, global economic growth rate was going to be because that's a, the primary driver of long term uh oil demand so you're right. You're onto it, and and basically, we we've now got lots of reasons to ponder, and not be able to adequately define what the new normal will be in long-term economic growth. 